Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hello and welcome to this 18th episode of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. I'm Ed Hill and this is the podcast dedicated to the journals of my great-great-grandfather, William Mowbray Scott, back in the 1840s, early Victorian era. And they concern the travels that he partook as an early engineer, firstly around Europe, working on a early steam railway in Italy and then across the Atlantic to Mexico where he ends up working in the mint or coin making industry which is something that actually he'd been previously employed in when he'd been living in London before going to Europe to work on the railway. Welcome back any people listening again as ever I'll just quickly say this podcast is available on all good podcast platforms if you Google a grand tour with my great-great-granddad, it should come up at the top of the results, I hope. Usually the Acast player and website is the one that comes up highest, but it's on iTunes and Spotify and everything else and all the other various podcast platforms that are out there. Do subscribe if you so wish. It does help to raise the profile of the podcast and generate interest, as they say. Also, there's a Twitter account... Scott of the Historic, that's at 3G Grand Tour. I post quite a few photographs and things relating to the episodes on there if you do want to get an idea of something I might be talking about in a pictorial way, then uh, you should find a few things on there relating to the podcast. Probably should do a few more really, but um, sometimes actually images, it can be quite difficult You'd be surprised how many things historically that you want to use are owned by the likes of Getty Images and Alamy. So you, know, you do have to be wary of things like copyright, etc. Because if you're a lowly podcaster like myself, you can't afford to pay the fees involved. Poor podcasters. They collapsed at the microphone. <laughs> Starved he was. Chained to that microphone. Working on it for years. Sorry, I have strayed beyond what I was going to talk about. Uh, I was talking about the Twitter account, of course. Scott of the Historic. But there's also a Facebook page. That's at Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. And there is a Mastodon account as well, which uh, is GG Grand Tour. And that's at scotted at universadon.com. Hopefully you can enjoy this next episode. William's basically continuing his sightseeing around the centre of Milan, going around all the various buildings, palazzos, churches and theatres in this one particularly. Actually, that reminds me that on the last episode I was talking about palazzos being kind of not actual palaces which I probably should have looked up the actual word palazzo, because in a way it's a style of architecture that, as I was saying, represents grand buildings in the centre of cities, but not as we would normally identify as a palace in terms of, you know, a king or queen living in a palace. So William is continuing this sightseeing. I have featured quite a bit on the theatres here. I don't know really why, but uh, he mentions them quite a bit. He obviously did attend some performances, but I don't think certainly early on his Italian probably wouldn't have been great. I wonder how good his Italian got by the end of his time in Milan. He was only there a couple of years. One thing that slightly puzzled me in his later journals when he's in Mexico, 
Uh, obviously, Spanish is the main language there, and uh, he seems to understand that quite a lot. Or the things that he translates, I don't know quite to what extent he is translating stuff, or whether he's actually seeing stuff that has already been translated into English particularly when he's talking about newspaper accounts. I don't know if newspapers were printed in a kind of bilingual way at that time, because certainly some of these are very long passages that he takes from the newspapers. If he is translating them, then he's doing a fine job. Again, if you're tuning in, thanks for the support, and uh, do tell friends and family and people who might be interested in history about the podcast and about family history as well to some degree, because it is in some way enlightening to me to see William's character and obviously he does have a um, propensity to use words and write English and perhaps that's where I've inherited it from a little bit boring people in <laughs> print because uh, don't think it really comes from my uh, dad's side of the family because they were I would say fairly well they could chat a bit but I don't know my dad was quite taciturn interesting isn't it i hope you enjoy this next episode it starts with william basically continuing on walking around the various piazzas i think the first one is the palazzo de brera which is still there i think obviously a lot of names and architecture has changed since william's time i think this is an interesting episode as i continue doing it it's got kind of got more and more quirky with some of the people and characters involved so uh, i hope you enjoy The Palazzo de Brera next commands our attention. This is an immense building containing a large and valuable collection of paintings and a gallery of models from the antique as well as many valuable sculptures, a museum of curiosities, the Royal Observatory, library, etc. etc. The Royal Society of Science and Art hold their meetings here and also the medical and philosophical schools and another for the Latin tongue supported by the government. In the same street is the palazzo of the military commander-in-chief, or there is no lack of placement under the Austrian government. Placement is its kind of patsy. It's somebody who's appointed as a civil servant or government official. And their average number of soldiers at Milan amount to 7,000. The palazzo of the military chief is a fine building. There is a large court surrounded by an arcade, ornamented with some good frescoes, and in the different apartments are some very respectable oil paintings. In a continuation of the same street is the Café della Giardina Publico, a large establishment for the sale of coffee, tea, wines, spirits, fruits and confectionery, ices, etc. The different apartments are splendidly fitted up and are well provided with newspapers in all languages. There is also a garden attached, well filled up with bowers, alcoves, etc. and an excellent military band plays every evening. The Piazza Mercanti is a large square not far from the cathedral, in the centre of which is a building of very considerable size standing upon massy square columns. Massy just means large. And all open to the lower part. This place is used as a fair for the sale of books, prints, toys and a variety of other articles on the Sunday. The upper part contains the records of the government and to the register of all wills, deeds and the titles to estates, houses, etc. in the Kingdom of Lombardy. On one side of the square is the borsa or exchange for mercantile business and transactions in the funds. There is a fine tower to the building containing an excellent clock that strikes the hours and quarters. At the foot of the tower, on a pedestal of granite, is a well-executed statue in marble of San Ambrosia, the patron saint of the Milanese. It's St Ambrose. <laughs> On the opposite side of the principal corpo de guardia, with two small cannon mounted in front, and along the same side, are some ancient buildings, the fronts of which are decorated with some curious and quaint sculptures, apparently of the Middle Ages. Indeed, the whole appearance of the Piazza Mercanti reminds the spectator forcibly of the Middle Ages. There is something so stiff, formal, and quaint about every part of it. I will just mention at this point that the Piazza Mercanti is in fact a medieval piazza. So when William says it reminds one so much of the Middle Ages, 
That's because it was built in the Middle Ages. In fact, during medieval times, it was really the centre of Milan in terms of the administrative elements of the city. And the four main palazzos that surround it were all administrative buildings of medieval Milan. Perhaps the most important one was the Palazzo del Ragioni. That was what they call a broletto, which was, I suppose, a kind of parliament or um, assembly where important dukes and noblemen would meet in a sort of democratic assembly, I suppose you'd call it. And they also held trials there. And uh, I suppose it comes back to the mercantile thing and being a merchant's area. There's a thing they describe as a pit in there. I mean, it's really a kind of circular stone thing. It looks a bit like a well in a way, but with two big classical columns and a pediment above that rest on top of it. And um, this was called the uh, Pietra dei Feliti, or Stone of Failures. And um, apparently, if you were uh, found guilty of being bankrupt in uh, medieval Milan as a penance, you had to uh, stand on this, uh, or sit, I suppose, stand, kneel, I don't know, (laughs) on this pit or stone and uh, have your bare bottom exposed (laughs) to the public relatively harmless way of getting off being bankrupt I imagine than it would be these days in terms of the financial penalties that bankruptcy incurs but if you were found bankrupt in medieval Milan then that you had to expose your bare bottom. The Piazza del Duomo is a large open space immediately on the west front of the cathedral. On one side runs a covered arcade composed chiefly of jewellers and toy shops dealers in curiosities, and all kinds of knick-knacks and fancy articles. On one side of the piazza is the Teatro Rey for the performance of French plays. This theatre is of moderate size and very tastefully fitted up. It is much frequented by the higher classes. The Royal Palace is situated on the south side of the cathedral. The first view presents a front and two wings. Behind these are two immensely large courts surrounded by buildings. The upper one contains the apartments of the Viceroy and suite, and the latter one is appropriated to the domestic offices. On my visit here, I was exceedingly surprised at the vast number of carriages there were placed in this courtyard, all bearing the royal ensign, which is the letter F, surmounted by a crown. But I afterwards learnt that the government finds carriages for all its employees whose ranking titles them to use well, and they all bear the royal cipher, so there is no stoppages at the gates, for passports, duties, etc. This palace was erected during the Empire of Napoleon as a town residence for his son-in-law, Eugene Bernier, the then Viceroy. The state of the apartments are numerous and fine, and the great staircase admirable. The ceilings and many of the rooms were painted by Appiani, Andrea Appiani, who uh, lived from 1754 to 1817, a celebrated Milanese artist, In one of the frescoes, the assembly of the gods, the head of the Emperor Napoleon has been given to Jove, and the likeness is both striking and effective. The reception room is very spacious and contains some exceedingly fine paintings by living artists. The furniture, hangings, etc. are in the most gorgeous style. There is also a library of some extent, and a small gallery of antiques, and a gallery of portraits, and also one of drawings and engravings. The general post office is situated close to the palace, The building is large, commodious, and apparently well calculated for the purpose, being divided into different apartments, similar to the general post office in London. The Teatro Royal Canobiana, now known as the Teatro Lirico. The Teatro Royal Canobiana is also adjoining the palace, with which it has private communication by a covered gallery across the street. This theatre is not quite so large nor so highly decorated as La Scala nor yet is its scenery so striking or effective. But at the same time, it is by no means a despicable place of amusement. The orchestra is both numerous and contains many talented men. The performances of Italian comedy are highly respectable. The ballet fails little, if anything, short of the rival theatre, and I am of the opinion that there is as much, if not more, amusement at the Canobiana than there is at La Scala. At this point, I'm going to stop and talk a little bit about these various theatres that William is mentioning. Firstly, to talk about the most famous theatre in Milan, which, of course, is La Scala. Obviously, it's a well-known um, venue for operas primarily. It was built on the site of a church. It was built as a replacement for a former theatre that I think had burnt down. 
and then the people of Milan, probably the higher society people, demanded that a new theatre be built. So they appealed to the Austrian rulers at the time. It was opened in 1778, and it was funded mainly by the boxes being sold off to wealthy Milanese people to uh, own, a bit like they do now with football stadiums and things. Of course, it's been the site of premieres of many well-known operas. The actual first opera that was performed there was called Europa Wiconscutia. <laughs> I think I've said that right. That was by Antonio Salieri. So if you're familiar with the film Amadeus and his supposed plotting against Mozart, you'll know that name. I think it's pretty well been proved that there wasn't really any truth in that film. There might have been some rivalry between Salieri and Mozart, but there wasn't any underhand plotting to kill him in any way. But makes a good story, I suppose, for a film. And I think since the film's been made, Salieri's work has sort of been re-evaluated a bit, and it was uh, perhaps not as bad as, <laughs> as is sort of made out in the film or is conveyed in that film. It's interesting, though, because thinking about it, of course, Salieri was Italian and uh, Mozart obviously was Austrian, and there was this ongoing tension between the Austrian rulers and the Italian people in Lombardy, Venetia. Maybe that was another reason why Salieri wasn't a big fan of Mozart. So as I say, a lot of this has been debunked, and in fact there are examples where they actually work together on things as well. So let's get back to the Scala. Many famous operas were premiered there from Verdi. You had Nabucco and Otello and Puccini's Madame Butterfly and Turandot or Turando. Apparently it doesn't matter which way you say it, either is correct. Italians say Turandot and other people say Turando apparently, but there's no real reason why you can't say either. Anyway, they were premiered there at uh, La Scala. And when it was initially opened, as William alluded to, it was very big in terms of the number of seats. It was nearly 3,000, not quite as many as the one in Cuba that we mentioned. Apparently it still has one of the largest stages in Italy for a theatre. And uh, interestingly, there's a reference to Mary Shelley, who was visiting the theatre in 1840. So she's there at the time that William is there. And uh, this is from a book of hers called Rambles in Germany and Italy. She visits the opera to see particular production there. And at this time, in the, I suppose you'd call it the uh, stalls, they didn't have seats there initially. People would stand. And as well as the opera, there were casinos there. And there was all a sort of lot of noise. People would do all sorts of trading and um, other events, <laughs> aside from just listening to the opera. I'll read this extract from Mary Shelley about what she says at the time. At the opera, they were giving Otto Nicolai's Templario. Unfortunately, as it is well known, the Theatre of La Scala serves not only as the universal drawing room for all the society of Milan, but every sort of trading transaction from horse-dealing to stock-jobbing, is carried on in the pit, so that brief and far between are the snatches of melody that one can catch. Stock-jobbing is just stock-trading, basically. It's kind of an early form of stockbrokers. So at this performance of Otto Nicolai's Templario, she couldn't hear very much because of all the noise coming from the, the floor space down below. I didn't know anything about this book of Mary Shelley's. It's called Ramblings in Germany and Italy. And there's actually three volumes of it. And the first volume is the one that this extract has taken from. Basically, she returned to Italy on what she described as a bit of a pilgrimage with her son, Percy Florence Shelley. And it was just before he was due to go off to university. So they went on a tour of Europe. A bit like a grand tour, I suppose. He went with some friends she did her tour in a way in the opposite direction to William. She comes down via the Rhine and rivers to get to Milan and then back through France. He was going the other way, but she doesn't spend that much time in Milan, actually. She's mainly at Lake Como when she's in Italy. The book is kind of a diary account of her time on these travels. Unfortunately, she sort of only published it, really, because she wanted to raise 
funds and raise the prominence of the idea or the movement of Italian revolution and Italian unification. And she got particularly close to a Italian revolutionary called Ferdinando Goteschi. And uh, there might have been some kind of romantic thing going on there. Who knows? But he doesn't sound like a very nice character because he got a bit fed up with her and then he tried to blackmail her because she sent him, I think, some personal letters to him. And so she had to get the French police involved to get these letters back off him. Apparently, you know, it was a bit of an embarrassing incident for her. So poor old Mary Shelley, this is quite near the end of her life as well, so maybe she got slightly taken advantage of by uh, Ferdinando Gateschi. Her account of crossing the Channel, going from Dover to Calais, not Dover to Boulogne, which is what William did, but <laughs> it's actually surprisingly similar. She talks about everyone being seasick and... Um, being out on deck and stuff when i read it I thought, oh God, it's almost identical to uh, william's experiences crossing the channel the book wasn't actually republished for many many years obviously mary shelley's mainly famous for writing frankenstein and it wasn't really actually until the kind of late 70s that the rest of her work was re-evaluated she's sort of more famous than her husband these days isn't she really anyway this ramblings was reprinted then in the 70s but as I say, I've read a bit of it. She's, she comes over, to be honest, as a bit sort of uh, flaky. She's always kind of complaining about incidents of feeling sort of a bit faint and a bit under the weather. I mean, I think, unfortunately, it's just a reflection of the fact that she probably wasn't very well at the time. And in those days, as I've mentioned before, life expectancy and dealing with medical treatments, you know, it wasn't great. So it's probably complications to do with her just health in general. But there's quite a lot of references to I had to spend the day in bed today. <laughs> you know, and stuff like this. So, uh, <gasps> she was in Milan at the same time as William. She then, in the other volumes, two and three, she spends time in Italy, but not in Milan. Going on to these other theatres William mentions, there's the Teatro Rey. Rey is just R-E, because it was named after the proprietor, Carlo Rey. That was built in about 1813, was less than half the size of La Scala, and about a thousand seats. But it was a very popular theatre, had quite a mixed programme of both what they call Buffa and Syria operas. So Buffa is comic operas, really, the term for comic operas, and, and Syria, serious, serious drama operas. So it had a mixture of the two. It actually, in later years, and not that long after William was there, it became quite a centre point for meetings about Italian independence and, and unification. And in 1848, there was a meeting of journalists, lawyers, artists, all supporters of uh, Italian independence. But after that, its popularity began to decline. Although apparently, later on, it held science shows and acrobatics and things like that in 1866. A correspondent for the musical world wrote, The only respectable theatre available in Milan is the Teatro Rey, and this is so small that there is never any chance of obtaining a seat unless you are there at the time the doors are opened. Despite this, it did gradually decline in popularity, and it was um, finally uh, demolished in 1879. Now, the other theatre that William mentions is this one, which he calls the Teatro alla Canabiana, that's now generally known as the Teatro Lirico, and it is still there. It was actually built almost in tandem with La Scala, and in fact, um, when La Scala and the Teatro alla Canabiana were built, it was almost like La Scala was for the higher echelons of society to go and have their entertainment in, and the uh, Teatro alla Canabiana was more for the general public. Again, like all these theatres, actually, quite a lot of them had famous opening nights of uh, now well-known operas. The Teatro Lirico, as it's now known, it's sort of had a mixed history, I think you'd describe it as. It had various owners over the years and uh, was taken over by Milan authorities for a while. And it always seems like it struggled a bit for funding and for uh, maintaining its popularity, aside from... Um, theatrical endeavours that went on there. Apparently Mussolini gave some of his well-known speeches there. In fact, he gave his first well-known broadcast speech there and his last. 
broadcast speech there as well in um, 1944. So, sort of, as I say, had this sort of checkered history a little bit. And as recently as 1998, it closed down and uh, its future looked uncertain for many, many years. I don't think really people really knew what to do with it. And um, there were several attempts to revive it. But eventually, a project was begun in 2007 to renew it. And uh, it actually opened very recently again in uh, December 2021. So you can now go to the Teatro Lyrico and watch productions of various plays, ballets and entertainments. I think it seems to be almost like a music venue. In fact, it's actually now known as the Teatro Lyrico Giorgio Garba. And it's called that because he was a famous musician, artist, playwright, actor in Italy who did many performances there down the years in the 60s and 70s. So when it was reopened, aside from the Teatro Lyrico, it was named in honour of Giorgio Garba. It looks inside like it's had quite a big makeover. So there's pictures of it back in the 1930s, actually, where it seems to have a much more modern interior than La Scala has. It's interesting in a way. William's response to it is that uh, he feels better entertainment goes on there than at La Scala. So perhaps you could say it was a little bit less highbrow than the opera. Not that uh, opera is necessarily highbrow, but um, maybe it was just a bit more diverse in the uh, performances that it offered the public. As William says, I think French comedies and things like that as well. I'm also just quickly going to mention a theatre that William will mention in the next section but I thought I might as well talk about it here <laughs> while we're talking about all the theatres this is called the Teatro Girolamo now the theatre that William is looking at must have been the original one of that name it's described as a puppet theatre well these are quite large marionettes so it's almost as theatre on a human scale really that the marionette puppets that we use there's a bit of a tradition in Italian performance of these puppets theatres marionette theatres with quite large marionette puppets so it was big enough to stage on a human scale events so not only was it a puppet theatre but it was also described as a dialect theatre I think that just means people would do plays but just spoken plays rather than musical plays or operas probably in the Milanese style or local Milanese dialect William's describing the sort of events that went on there and um, it being a place of low comedies and perhaps less highbrow entertainment. It was rebuilt actually in 1868 and it is still there. I think it opened again in 2017 after being closed for quite a while because of safety reasons. It's a tiny theatre now, it's only got 209 seats and it's in this very tiny sort of horseshoe shape and I think obviously given its size... They're rather limited to the productions that they can have there, so I think there's kind of mainly little chamber orchestras and singers. Although at one time I think it was quite well known for its plays and its comedies, but subject matter was fairly contemporary with events that were going on at the time. But that's not the theatre that William is looking at, the one that's there now. I've only seen one etching of it. It looks quite a big, tall building in this etching of it in 1806, which must have been the one that William's looking at. This newer theatre, its interior is uh, mainly built from wood. It's very ornate, but I think because the interior is built from wood, that has, down the years, caused problems and issues with safety and stuff, so it's sort of open and closed due to that. But there's not that much I can find about the original theatre that Will is describing here, other than the actual details he gives about performances that went there. Now it's almost like a little venue for hire, although they do have performances there but i'd say it's almost like one man shows or just very small productions but that is the teatro girolamo and it was named or it was originally run by a famous puppeteer in milan called giuseppe fiando so that is the theatres that were around at the time when william is in milan <laughs> On the opposite side of the palace is a small and ancient church, having no entrance except from the palace itself. This church has a lofty octagonal tower surmounted by a spire. The whole of the creation is of red brick, 
richly and elaborately wrought. The arches of the windows, the cornices, architraves, etc., are interspersed with wreaths of flowers and foliage of the same material, most exquisitely fine. This little church is well worthy to be attached to an imperial palace, for it is a most beautiful gem of art, and a faithful chronicle of the piety and patience of the Middle Ages. The palace of the Cardinal Archbishop of Milan is also on the south side of the cathedral, with which it has a subterranean communication. It is a large and ancient building. The architecture is a mixture of the Grecian with the Gothic, and consists of an upper and lower court, surrounded by buildings, a covered arcade or cloister running around them both. Along the walls are statues of many of the former archbishops, as well as several of their monuments, and several altars are placed at different parts, where mass is celebrated and at stated periods prayers made for the souls of the departed. The principal front is the Piazzi Fontana, and is of most considerable length and of good proportions. The interior is very plainly, though at the same time very comfortably furnished. It contains a good library and a gallery of portraits of all the archbishops of Milan. The present Cardinal Archbishop of Milan is a native of Germany. He was actually Austrian. And a relative of the present Emperor of Austria, and a man eminently qualified for his high and important office, living in the most plain and familiar way, and expending his large income in works of charity and benevolence. During the first winter of my residence in that city, a winter unequalled for the severity in the memory of the oldest inhabitant, I have repeatedly seen the venerable old man passing from house to house in the narrowest and lowest streets, seeking out objects for his bounty, exhorting the people to bear with patience and resignation the temporary evils that were oppressing them, and pointing the way to a better and more enduring kingdom hereafter. Now, there are some of you Protestant archbishops and bishops in John Bull's land especially that would see the poor die at your very gate, before you would lend them a helping hand, or spare them a shilling from your well-filled purses. No, you can roll about in state in your easy carriages, you can go forth to the house of legislature, and be ever the foremost to assist in oppressing the people, and depriving them of their just rights. Now you, Charles James, Lord Bishop of London, Charles James Blomfield, and you, Fari Turnbull, Lord Bishop of Exeter, that extort your thousands and tens of thousands from the pockets of what one of your body was pleased to term the swinish multitude, would you leave your beds of down to read prayers at that hour of five on a cold morning in winter, or would you rise from it at midnight to administer comfort and consolation to the poor and dying sinner, or enter the dwellings of the wicked and profligate to warn them of the evil of their ways and furnish them with the means of adopting a more proper course of life? No, I think you would answer, if hard-pressed upon the subject, that you kept chaplains to do that for you, some poor, half-starved creature on a pittance of fifty pounds a year. Now, adopt the old saying, if you want a thing well doing, do it yourself. Follow the example of the venerable and good man of whom I am speaking. See with your own eyes, hear with your own ears, make yourselves acquainted with the real condition of your people, and be what your office imports. Faithful shepherds of the flock of Christ. So, William here getting off on one little bit <laughs> about the nature of the Roman Catholic and Church of England clergy. In a way, it's one of these examples where William's opinions about things are often quite contradictory. I've discussed before, most of the time, he's slagging off things to do with the Catholic Church and priests and all its negative aspects as he sees them. But here he's eulogising about this Bishop of Milan, who happened to be called Carlo Giattano Kaiseruck. As I said, he was not German, as William says, but Austrian. And uh, he was actually appointed Bishop of Milan by the Austrian king, Frederick II, after a period where there hadn't been a Bishop of Milan. It was mainly to do with Napoleon, who had, for whatever reason, had prevented a new archbishop being appointed at the time he was in charge. So, anyway, after Napoleon's defeat, there wasn't a bishop of Milan for a while. And then um, after the Congress of Vienna and uh, Austria being put back in charge of this bit of northern Italy, Lombardy, Venetia, Frederick II appointed Carlo Giattano Geisruck as uh, 
Archbishop of Milan without the Pope's consent, apparently. So there was a bit of controversy about that at the time, but finally it was resolved and he kept the position as Archbishop of Milan despite the Pope initially not being too happy about it. And he's described as a pious and vigorous pastor, which I can only suggest is what William is alluding to when he says he sees him going out in the early hours of the morning and tending to the poor and trying to help them and rehabilitate them and see the errors of their ways. So obviously William holds this archbishop in high regard, given what he says about him. Actually, historically, because of his links to Austria, he wasn't really that popular amongst Milanese people and Italian people in terms of the progress towards Italian unification. So despite his day-to-day piety and good nature, generally he wasn't very popular with the Milanese population. I don't know, it's hard to know this is all done in kind of a big political historical context in a way. It's nice to hear from William the the kind of an account of him in a day-to-day way in which he behaved. Add more light to what he was actually like in character. So then William goes off on one, as I mentioned, about these Protestant bishops. The Bishop of London, Charles Blomfield. And uh, now he calls him Fari Turnbull, the Bishop of Exeter. But I can only think that William has got the name wrong here, which is understandable because we do have to remind ourselves that William is living in an age where there's hardly any media other than newspapers. So if you're just going from memory of someone that you've read about being the Bishop of Exeter and being a bit controversial or something like that, it's not like the modern day media where we're surrounded by television, radio, social media, every blooming minute of the day we can hear about the latest pronouncements and controversies regarding politicians and high standing clergy and whatever it would be. So the actual Archbishop of Exeter at this time was a man called Henry Philpot, and in every other way in which William describes him, he sort of seems to fit the bill. And I've tried to look for a fiery Turnbull or someone referred to as that as an archbishop in this era, and I can't find one. So I can only think that he's talking about Henry Philpot, who was the archbishop of Exeter at this time, and he certainly was a controversial figure. Just getting back to Charles Blomfield, I'd describe him as a scholarly clergyman. He got a first in mathematics from Trinity College in Cambridge when he graduated and he won awards for Greek and Latin and stuff. So he was obviously a very smart, educated man and he was said to be one of the best debaters in the House of Lords. In fact, it was said that people with great anticipation sharpened their quills of their pens before he was about to speak, so whether that was the reporters of the day or other members of the chamber who would like to listen to his um, speeches. Being the Bishop of London at the time, he administered the marriage of Queen Victoria and Albert, so he was the one saying, do you take this? (laughs) Queen? (laughs) To be your lawful wedded wife. And do you take this? Albert. (laughs) To be your lawful wedded husband. So it was him in charge of the ceremony. But moving on to the Fari, as William calls him, Fari Philpot, perhaps we should call him, <laughs> Henry Philpot. He was um, definitely a controversial figure. He, I suppose, had associations and sympathies with the high church. He was considered to be quite um, reactionary and strict in his outlook. He was described as one of the last clerical aristocracy. He had 18 children and... Uh, when he was offered the Archbishop of Exeter, which came with a salary of £3,000 a year, he realised that wouldn't be enough to keep his kids in food and clothes. So he uh, managed to wrangle it to also remain as a canon of Durham and get £4,000 a year for that job. So this idea of last clerical aristocracy basically kind of suggests that if you were uh, one of these very, very high up members of the church at this time, you would get a sort of income that would be equivalent to someone in the nobility. And he does seem to have been a bit of a financial spendthrift. He built a palace in Torquay for his own habitation, which was enormous. In fact, it was the Palace Hotel in Torquay, and it was in 25 acres of ground, and um, it's actually only really recently been demolished. It was for a long time a very, very grand hotel in the outskirts of Torquay, but it got demolished literally 
the beginning of this year in January 2023 and they're going to build some other resort there seems a bit strange you'd have thought of building of that nature was in some way listed and stuff but anyway it'd been the palace hotel for many many years right from the early sort of 1900s i think but bishop philpot was the one who originally had it built in i think what's described as a italianate style back in 1841 i think it was he wasn't very popular in exeter apparently they burned an effigy of him on guy fawkes night <laughs> he opposed catholic emancipation and parliamentary reform very much a kind of old school figure in modern terms conservative both with a, a big c and small c he supported the tory party in parliament and generally quite a controversial figure there's a quote here about him and i will read it because i think in a way it sums up what he was like and perhaps this is how William kind of knows his reputation as being fiery. He was described as a genuinely religious man, with his religion concealed behind porcupine quills. He constantly quarrelled in the House of Commons, exposing opponents' follies with consummate ability. A tongue and eyes of flame, an ugly tough face and vehement speech. Ugly tough face, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, that's actually something up. I was going to say it was a bit cruel now, but now I'm looking at the picture again. It does look like an ugly tough face, actually. <laughs> oh dear. There's a picture here, actually, of him with six of his sons on the occasion of his 90th birthday in 1868, and he's sitting in a wheelchair. That is quite a comical picture as well, actually. <laughs> Seems cruel to say about an old man in his 90s in a wheelchair, but I'll have to post this picture on my Twitter account. I describe him as looking a bit like the uh, a cross between Doctor Strangelove and the uh, Doctor Who character and uh, creator of the Daleks, Davros. Dalek. <laughs> right. Okay. So, if there are any Doctor Who fans there, if you're familiar with Davros and you're familiar with the film Doctor Strangelove, imagine a kind of cross between the two, and that gives you an image of fiery Bishop Philpot in his nineties. Uh, <laughs> Like all these things, it's simplistic to say he was completely mean, the Bishop of Exeter. There were causes with which he aligned himself which were obviously worthy. Ironically, William mentions this thing about these bishops having um, minions, poor clergy, to do this work of going out and seeing the poor. And then he says on a pittance of £50 a year. Well, interestingly enough, one of the things that Henry Philpott's campaign for <laughs> was the lower clergy, as it were, be paid a minimum of £50 a year. So that was kind of him, wasn't it? On his uh, at least £7,000 a year and probably a lot more given there's all these other ways that these high archbishops and clergymen made money and got income, all these various stipends and... Uh, <laughs> contributions and I mean, the whole thing just seems a bit of a religious gravy train if, if you were high enough up in it to earn the money but yeah if you were a poor lowly clergyman and preacher you were uh, lucky to get 50 pounds a year which uh, it's hard to judge now because uh, you know obviously william considers that a pittance so it's kind of interesting to get an idea of what an average wage might have been and what was considered a lot and what wasn't William doesn't discuss too much his own financial situation, so uh, I wonder what William was on. <laughs> Just another quick quote here about the Bishop of Exeter, Henry Philpotts. He was well known for using litigation to achieve his aims and was an earnest administrator, for example, fighting hard to raise the minimum salary for curates in his diocese to £50, <laughs> seeking to increase the rights of the poor under the poor laws and to ease the plight of children employed in coal mines and as chimney sweeps. So he wasn't all bad. OK, moving on to the next section of the journal. William continues. The Piazza Fontana is a large and well-built square having a unique marble fountain in the centre, a large basin below into which the water flows from lion's heads. 
On a pedestal placed within this are three beautiful female figures supporting a smaller basin, and above this the fluid rises in jets and falls over its edge into the one below. The principal defect in this fountain is the want of a sufficient quantity of water to give it proper effect. Near this square is the Teatro Girolamo. This is the puppet theatre that I discussed earlier on, but this one is, although the same name, is considerably different from the one that's now there. A building of large size and a place of amusement, chiefly frequented by the working classes, the pieces performed here being what we should term in England the domestic drama, and once or twice a week a festa de barlo, or dancing, in which any person may join by paying a small sum. The Tribunal of Premier Instance, or High Court of Criminal Justice, is one side of this square. This court takes cognizance, that's judicial notice or authority, cognizance of all murders, robberies, thefts committed in this district, it possessing all the power of life and death. After the prisoners have had their trial, which is secret and without a jury, the general way of proceeding being in the first instance to interrogate the prisoner. The different witnesses are then examined separately and are afterwards sworn to their depositions. On a day appointed, the prisoner is brought before the prefect and consigliere, like a judge really. The witnesses are introduced separately, the depositions read over, and the prisoner has the privilege of asking the witnesses any questions he may think proper. This ceremony gone through, the prisoner is again remanded to his cell, and the next day his sentence is communicated to him. In all cases not capital, the prisoners are then exhibited in front of the tribunal on a stage and chained to a post for three successive days. Above their heads is placed a large placard setting forth their name, age, late residence, crime and sentence. And as the Austrian government have no colonies to transport their prisoners to, the sentences for murder or stabbing with the knife result in death by hanging, and that in a most barbarous way but to which I shall have to allude to hereafter. For other crimes, such as highway robbery, burglary, etc., imprisonment for life, for twenty or ten or six years, as the case may be, is conferred and the prisoner sent to Mantua, one of the most unhealthy spots in Italy. There was a prison in Mantua. Actually, Mantua was made Italian city of culture in 2016, so <laughs> it must have improved a bit since then. <laughs> Furthermore, newspapers in this country never publish anything about murders, robberies, etc., and the proceedings of the tribunal are secret. So this is the only way the public have of knowing anything about the matter, which is perhaps the best plan in many cases, as the newspapers in England, and in London especially, only keep the public mind in a state of feverish excitement and encourage morbid feelings by their minute descriptions of matters sufficiently horrifying in general terms, and are often the cause, especially in weak minds, of further crimes being committed. So I think this is a good place to stop here with William's description of how the legal system was operated in uh, Milan at this time. Quite an interesting insight, really, into how sentences were dispatched and carried out. William mentions about the brutal way of hanging someone. I can't remember if he does actually ever then describe that. Or maybe it will come up in a future section. I do remember him describing a gruesome way of execution, but I think that's in uh, Mexico, where they use a contraption to break the neck. Nice! But it's not hanging, so... It may be that he discusses this later on, about the time when he's in Italy. In fact, it comes up several times in the journals, various descriptions and methods of execution. I suppose you've got to say, in a way, a lot of these events happened in public, so um, it was an alternative form of entertainment, I suppose. <laughs> Seems rather gruesome now. Also, there's his criticism of the newspapers as well, which is interesting. Even then, you could say the more respectable in society were criticising the more outlandish aspects of the... It wouldn't have been tabloid press because all the newspapers would have been on a large size paper, but the scurrilous press of the time. This has been, I think, an interesting episode. 
there have been some very long passages of me explaining things. I think at the beginning of these podcasts, I did say there would be, I think I used the term less of me yapping on. <laughs> and as I go through it, sometimes it seems to be more of me yapping on and less of William. But I think I've said this before, it's hard to predict what topics are going to run and then bring forth content and the ones that don't as I'm going along. Of course, you're just uncovering gems of information, such as the bearing of bare bottoms in the uh, Piazza Mercanti, <laughs> which uh, I only discovered as a little footnote in the uh, research that I was doing. All I can say is that it's the nature of the task that uh, some topics are explored a bit more in depth than others. Another thing that's hard to predict sometimes is what needs explaining as well. For example, I think I have to say a little bit about who William was referring to when he mentions the Bishop of London and Bishop of Exeter, because he's uh, making such a big deal about how he considers their behaviour to be improper or uh, hypocritical. So I hope you have enjoyed listening to this episode. As I say, do subscribe if you can. That does help get more attention towards the podcast. Do seek the podcast out on Twitter as I said, and on the Facebook page and on the Mastodon account as well. Even a WT social account. As for TikTok, maybe, maybe I should do something on TikTok. I do hope to do some video content on YouTube in the future. So that'll be something to look forward to. Hopefully for the viewer. <laughs> that is the end of this episode. If you have enjoyed it, do listen again. Do tell your friends. And I look forward to you joining me again next time as we continue William's journey. Mm -hmm.